Hey guys, I'm Danny. And I'm EJ. And this is the Your Living Proof Podcast. Where we talk about addiction and how it affects the family. From the brutal to the beautiful and everything in between. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Your Living Proof Podcast. I'm here with the beautiful blondie. There's no rules today, guys. Today's (laughs) going to be completely erratic. Just like my brain. Is that okay? Yeah. Because it does. It, it jumps around quite a bit. But today's an incredible time in my life, our life, yep. my family's life, because we're celebrating something that had not happened. I wouldn't have you and those three little meninos. Mm-hmm. So today is episode 40, number 40. And uh, today we're going to celebrate my 15th year of sobriety. That's right. Yes. May We need like 1st. some music right there. It's like boom. <laughs> No, we need a real song. A real song? Like one of our favorite worship songs or something? Yeah, actually, if you're going to have a song for today, it's going to be Brandon Lake's Gratitude. Oh, Gratitude, that's a good one. Okay, so just look that up. Just turn that on and know that that is what we will be listening to today. Yeah, so May 1st, 2007 was literally scooped up off the ground, found not only spiritually dead, but hanging on for dear life physically. And uh, a lot of things have transpired in 15 years. Yeah. I No no doubt. I don't really <laughs> know how to summarize all of that. But today we wanted to we wanted to talk about it and really it's a celebration. I know that it's also a sensitive topic and sometimes people are like, you know, why do you celebrate this so much? I'm sure there are people who wonder that. Yeah. Because honestly, to me, it's more of a celebration than my actual birthday. We do actually celebrate this day more than we celebrate his birthday. That's the truth. Like the yeah. day that you're actually born. And in a way, it was a complete rebirth because it, it was hitting the in reset. every way. Yeah, in every way. It was a complete rebirth. And had that not happened, there would be no more celebrating anything. So today I wanted to just talk about a couple of things. And then I was told that you have some... Well, yeah, I'm going to be asking you many things throughout this, but... This this is... That's unplanned. This is uncharted <laughs> territory. Almost like her behavior every day. Her oh, attitude. Oh, now it's me. Okay. Oh, yeah. sweet. I mean, it, the attitude, that's true. But the reason why people like myself, I guess it'd be safe to say I recover loudly so others don't die quietly. What I have learned these last 15 years is my stories far too common yeah as unique as it was to me and our family and those close to us i've come to find that it's far too common of a story and there's far too many people that are headed down a wrong path that are lost and who are ultimately going to die because of this and often it happens quietly it's all kept hush yeah well what part of your story is common is the fact that you poor way of dealing with an emotional wound and so you became addicted to things that terrible killing you yes but the uncommon part is the fact that you chose to live yeah. and, and you did the work required to be here today yeah that's uncommon it is and it's it's unfortunate because mo- the most recent statistics if you go look and everyone listening we all know we have our opinions about the cdc and these reports that come out because they are what they are 
But anyway, if you're looking at one universal reporting, the most recent statistics are that 7% of people with known addictions ever recover. Back when I went to treatment, it was kind of known throughout the treatment world that a third, a third of people get help, a third of people never recover, and a third of people eventually die from this. So the statistics are getting worse. They weren't very good when I sought help, and they're getting worse as as time goes on. So it is a very small number of people who recover, and I have very strong opinions as to why. But we'll get into that later. So 15 years is something to celebrate. It is. It's something I'm very proud of. It's something I've witnessed very few people do. I went to an incredible treatment facility. I met during the four months that I was there a few hundred people. And as years went by, I would go back for the five-year reunion, eight-year reunion, 12-year reunion. And it was just last year I found out that of the, I think it was 103 people who had checked in and gone through the program while I was there because let's get real. I was so messed up that I was there for longer than the normal person. Yeah. They didn't know quite what to do with me. So I saw a lot of people come and go and there was me and one other who were still coming to the reunion. Yeah. Who hadn't fallen away. Yeah. And that was pretty, that was a pretty sobering yeah. thing to find out. So I just want to recap real quickly where the journey began. So we say May 1st, 2007, you know, rewind time just a bit and, and things were not good. You've, if you've seen my story on our website, my brother and my dad, by divine intervention, both had the same dream the same night that they were speaking at my funeral. Hold up. If you have not watched that, it's eight, eight and a half, nine minutes long. Go to the website, click on our story and watch it. It's worth the watch, yeah. but have some tissues. Well, so they came and I, it was a long story, but they eventually found me. And when they found me, I was, I was broken two days previous or maybe three days previous to that. A friend and I were so desperate. I was, you know, homeless at this point, living in a car. I had a car still, which was great, but living out of the car, we had nothing left. We had pawned everything. We had no means to anything. And we decided that we were going to rob the drug dealers. We were both so sick, physically sick, going through withdrawals. We needed something. So my friend was bigger than me, bigger than most. And we decided we'll just call them. And when they come, we're just going to take it from them by whatever means necessary. I was so sick that he's driving my car. I'm in the passenger seat with my feet up on the dashboard. He hits a parked car going about 40 miles an hour through this neighborhood, chasing these guys down. And my feet pushed the windshield out. I went over the hood onto the road in front. My car is completely full of drugs, drug paraphernalia. We have no windshield. We have damaged and crashed my car and somehow miraculously drove back home. He, he carried me into to the basement of this home and where we had been staying and essentially left me to die. When my dad and brother found me, it had been a few days. I hadn't had any food or water. I weighed less than 100 pounds. Every vein in my body was black. Um, and it was that basement that my brother actually had to carry me out of. I couldn't walk. Both of my ankles had busted hitting this windshield. So that's a pretty gruesome picture. But I always like to remind people that didn't happen overnight. Right. Getting to that state. But I also passed several points at which people think, oh my gosh, did he finally hit rock bottom? People always hope that that 
next thing their loved one experiences is going to be their rock bottom. And what I learned is there is no such thing. Right. There is always a door deeper. And when you are victim to addiction, you'll keep finding a deeper door. One that's underneath that. I watched friends die of drug overdose. Incredible people from incredible families. I've witnessed people die. I've seen it in front of me. I was involved with people and places that now at this point in my life, I can't even fathom. It's almost like a disconnect that that was the case. I saw some of the most gruesome, ugly, horrible things. Places that the spirit of God, the spirit of goodness do not exist, do not reside. Um, I've, I was found living in a storage unit once, had been in there for a week or two, um, had everything repossessed. I'd been in, in and out of jail. I, I experienced all of it. And it led to a point where it was, it was a blessing that I was found. And that's where the journey began. So 15 years ago, my brother carried me out. I went to... I do want to say one thing, and that is that at that point, obviously everyone knew there was a major problem, you yeah. know, but there had been seven years of, of yeah, about addiction eight years. Yeah. and abuse that were going on where you were a high functioning person. You yes. were accomplishing so much. I'm and, so and, glad you brought that up. And I think that's, that's major because you were very sick, yeah. but still doing all the things. I always tell people addictions, like a 10 chapter book. Okay doesn't matter how long you use or what age it's a 10 chapter book the first six or seven chapters are pretty uneventful you're identifying characters you're kind of telling the story then chapter seven and eight start to ramp up a little bit and in everyone's chapter book of addiction it's in the ninth and tenth chapter where things just come to a head well and then where people even those close to you become acutely aware oh yeah and they're affected and they're and they're negatively right? affected now but i think that is mind-blowing and i think that's shocking to so many people to know like oh well i know they've got a little problem but it's probably not, you know it's not that big of a deal they're still going to school they're still doing work there's and i'm like that does not mean it's not a little problem correct you know because if you flash for the first few chapters of my addiction like you said i was highly functioning yeah and at that time i didn't see it as anything bad I, I had served a mission for my church. I was a college graduate. I had done numerous things, right? The started typical a company. Eagle Scouts started come. I've just done everything. I was married. I was able to conceal this problem for so long, which is the case with everybody. For so long, I found this. I found the perfect way, right? I was my own doctor. I found the perfect way to self-medicate. Right. Um, I found something that took away physical pain, and then. Notice that it also took away this emotional discomfort that I couldn't navigate through, this void that I had inside, and I just stayed stuck in there. Meanwhile, it's progressing right. over time. It's starting to get harder to conceal, but I was able to do all this. I, could, I graduated college. I started a business. I was able to do church callings and duties and family responsibilities. Right. Showing up to church, showing up to family dinner. But everybody, like myself, eventually it catches up. Eventually you can't hide it. Eventually it just starts to take a toll. Your relationships start to dwindle and fall apart. You start lying and covering up lies with lies. You start lying to yourself. And ultimately that's when every addiction turns the corners when you are no longer right. honest with yourself. You can't even win the battle within yourself. Right. You have no choice. And that's when truly every person in addiction loses their agency. Yep. 
you're no longer able to make choices. So it was a process. It didn't get to that point overnight. And that's where I've been so passionate in these last years of my life is trying to help people stop it. At some point in the journey, we've got to intervene and stop it. Right. Because when people get to the point where I did, very few make it out. Very few people make it out. Here I was, this little piano playing Eagle Scout return missionary sitting in a jail cell facing multiple felony possession charges, having destroyed my life, destroyed a marriage, destroyed a business, lost every material possession to to my name, put my health in serious jeopardy. People in that situation usually do not make it out. Right. I had an incredible family. And here's here's a secret that we learned. Our family was guilty as any other family out there for so long at hiding this, covering it up, shoving it under the rug, dealing with it in-house, making sure no one else really knew what was going on. But when it finally got to that point, they stopped caring about that, what other people thought about hiding it. Mm-hmm. They sought help. They listened to other people, instruct them on how to be, how to set boundaries, how to support them, how to help me move forward. And our whole family healed in that process. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I actually put our family through hell. And when I know my mom's probably listening to this and I negatively affected her physically, probably forever in a small way, because moms feel so deeply and worry so hard that it actually just can physically take a toll on you. That's irreversible. But our relationship now, my mom and I is so connected, so real. And it's it's the most beautiful thing. Our entire family, in these last 15 years, we faced other challenges, of course. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's been divorce. People have dealt with depression. People have had addictions. And, you know, I have a brother who would be more than happy for me to share this, who went through serious trauma in his life a few years ago. And he was what I call a 30-day alcoholic. He was self-medicating with alcohol. He was so desperate. The trauma he went through was so severe. I won't even go into that. That he was drinking so he could fall asleep. Yeah, he wasn't drinking to have a good time. No, all by himself. Just a self-medication. It's cheap, easy to get. And you know what happened is he called me. He called me 30 days in and said, hey, you know, he told me his name. I'm just calling to tell you, brother, I'm an alcoholic. And I was like, okay. We talked through it. And what was awesome is that we immediately put in a plan. He got help and he's been amazing ever since. Yeah. Because it's the things that my family learned through this whole process. So as gut-wrenching as it was and as hard as it was, because my addiction, just like any other person in the world, it divided my family. Sure. Yep. My youngest brother, there was a point in which one of the first times when I got incarcerated, my family came to visit me. And it's still a humbling thing to say out loud. And I wasn't there because I was in a jail cell. But out in the parking lot, my my youngest brother started freaking out. I think he was like pushing and hitting my dad and screaming at the rest of my family in the parking lot. Like, when are we going to wake up? Danny's going to die. Like, some people were a little bit more naive. Others were hopeful. Some were desperate. It was just a tangled mess. And my addiction was driving them apart. Yeah. It was affecting my parents' relationship. Sure. It was affecting their relationship with the other kids. It was just a mess. But it's when we came together and did what was necessary. When dad and brother found me in that basement, they knew exactly 
what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. They had found a place they were comfortable with. They had the number to the guy. They knew that the instructions were to go to the hospital here before they go here. And then after here's what we're going to do. That gave them this comfort. So when they came to offer help, they said, we have a way to help you. We're going to support you. Instead of what the hell are you doing? When are you going to get your act together? When are you going to shape up in life? Mm-hmm. Which is what we all kind of do naturally. Well, it's what you're thinking in your head, yeah. but it's not helpful. So they were prepared because someone helped them. And it was a miraculous difference. And when yeah. I accepted that help, we had we knew exactly what we were doing and we followed a plan. So a lot of things have been learned. <laughs> yeah, a lot that- of things have been learned. I hope that's a good way to recap things. But no one recovers from addictions, whether they are sexual, whether they are things to do with gambling, substances, out, drugs, Food. or alcohol. They don't recover without support. Yeah, But no one who is supporting or willing to support knows what the hell to do. Yeah, why would you? Why would you? Why would you? It is the same as if you were had a child that was born with autism. How would you know how to navigate that? Right. You would educate yourself. You would learn. You would seek help. Mm-hmm. So if you have someone with an, with an addiction, you need help understanding them because the reality is the way they're functioning and living your life doesn't play by the rules. It doesn't make any sense. And it's not the same way you operate. Right. I had immediate challenges and required a lot of help. So here I was, I said, I want to live. When I accepted the help, I said, okay, I can't tell you to this day how to articulate how absolutely impossible or intimidating it is to say, okay, I want to live, but now I'm alone. I have multiple criminal charges to face. I'm looking at serving time. I'm financially ruined. I've wasted my life. I've destroyed everything. I have a lot of physical limitations. Limitations now. now. I'm. I'm. I have nothing. I have yeah. no bank account. No driver's license. Nothing but debt, wreckage, shame, and guilt. To top all that off, I spent a decade not only not developing coping skills or maturing emotionally, <laughs> yeah. but I actually backtracked. Yeah. I unraveled and lost all the ability that I had learned previously. So now I'm looking at the most impossible situation and I have no idea how to navigate through it. I never, ever once, this is where I differ from some people, but I never once doubted the existence of God. I never once did. Did I feel ashamed of it or unworthy of his love? Sure. But I never doubted it. So I had that. And that, that process ultimately helped me down the road. But even in the beginning, it's just feeling so tainted that, you know, you're unworthy of his love. But I, re- I required so much help. My parents had to literally help in such a high capacity that it would be alarming to most parents. But they did it because simultaneously I was required to do a lot. Yeah. Yes. A lot. Not only did I have a, a, a program through the, through the state that I had to do for the charges that I had. I did a residential treatment program for four months. I went to a sober living house, got a job, went to court, found out my fate, had to serve quite a bit of time behind bars, came out, had to do a program through the state. After that, I worked a rigorous program, got a sponsor, worked okay, the steps. Just real quick, just because we yeah. need to laugh for a second. Yeah. Can we talk about the fact that you were on the chain gang? I was on the <laughs> chain gang, guys. I was taking my boys. Oh my gosh. I was taking my boys out to Five Mile Pass as a place we go ride dirt bikes out where we live. And there were all these orange bags on the side of the road full of garbage. And my son's like, gosh, what are those big bags? 
And then we pull up and there's, there's the white van and I know what it is. And there's the person with the weapon standing behind and everyone else is out doing work in these jumpsuits. And my boys were like, Whoa, I have to tell you about that conversation. We won't do it now. But, but I bet it was epic. Yeah. And I told them, yeah, we talked about yeah, it. Did. They said, dad, did you ever have to do that? It was, I was like, well, yes, it was another lifetime. But yes, the chain gang was amazing, right? The ankle monitor guy, like you've seen it in a movie. It's hilarious, but it was me. <laughs> I actually, I got put on work duty. Listen to this. You can't even make this stuff Why up. Why is this so attractive to me? I, during, right before everything happened, before I lost my house, a friend of mine got busted with a bunch of stuff in his car and was facing serious charges. So he ratted me out. Cause when you're drug addict friends, right? Like you have these really poor morals and standards, right? Like really? So the second he got in trouble, he's like, no, it's Danny's fault. It was Dan Danny's. I got that from Danny. So I got framed for something and got the attention of the SWAT team here in Salt Lake city, Utah. I'm not kidding you. Here I am in this little cute Brady bunch neighborhood and the SWAT team raided my home. I wasn't the typical person. They had been watching me for a while and trying to figure out how I did this because the way I was living, I, I still had money. I was just robbing myself. So I, I spent everything I had, right? Mm -hmm. Pawned everything I had. They watched me and it didn't add up. So when they actually raided my house based upon this and what they found with this other guy and he swore a testimony that I had this, this in my house, the SWAT team raided my house. Yeah. And you want to know the funniest thing? They actually do <laughs> practice raids. Yeah. So this one was real, but they were using it as an opportunity. So they had SWAT team one and then SWAT team two was the trainees. Dude, cool. There was a helicopter above my house with a spotlight. When they came in, I had actually pulled in the driveway and all of a sudden I get surrounded. My car gets surrounded. I get handcuffed, thrown on the ground. There is a, a guy on my roof and I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> he had a rope around him. He repelled off of my roof, like kamikaze swinging, like, like if you're jumping off a cliff, through the back window of my house. That's very dramatic. And here's where it also got crazy. This is where I knew something was weird. And then I found out later they were training. I'm on the ground. And by the way, they had, I had this little Pomeranian dog. They had kicked <laughs> my dog. Yes. They kicked my dog. So listen, this is so, this is true. And then we'll get back on track. They kicked my dog. So I ran up handcuffed and tried to body slam one of the police officers. You headbutted somebody. I know you did. Yeah. I don't remember what had dog. happened. It was kind of in the report, but I like kicked him, did something to him. And yes, this man is holding an AR-15, right? Like he's in full tactical gear, helmet, light, everything, night vision. I'm, I don't know what I was thinking. I was just desperate. So things got worse for me. They actually hogtied me. If you don't know what that means, they had me handcuffed behind my back, my legs shackled, and then they tied my legs and my hands together behind my back. It's called being hogtied. You deserved it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried to bite one of the officers, even being hogtied. I mean, can you imagine the desperation? You didn't have access to your brain. They I'm took, sorry. they had taken the butt of his gun and, and, knocked me out. I woke up. Oh my gosh, this is so intense. I haven't gone here for a long time. I woke up <laughs> and there was an officer holding the garden hose on me. I'm hogtied. 
trying to regain consciousness. And there's a guy holding a, a garden hose on me, hosing me down. And I look over and my neighbors are all up and down the road or on, on their porch, like in their pajamas, everyone's looking. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. So this is happening. I'm laying on the ground. And then I see them bat around my front door. You know where they take that big, huge thing you've seen in the movies. They bat around my front door. And when they actually took me inside, they hit the door so hard that about 25 feet across the entryway to the, where the next wall was, the doorknob was in the wall. Yeah. They went for it. So I looked and I was like, why in the world are you batteramming the door? I'm right here. Like, nonetheless, they did a full raid. And the reason I say that is because it is crazy and it's something to laugh about. But here's the ir irony of this. When I the got- dog survived by the way yeah the I dog survived everybody to know yeah. she had trauma and was deeply emotionally not uh, unstable oh but then but she, she found the alive. most beautiful home like yeah, she, she just did lived. she went on a mission you guys yeah. she went on a service mission yeah, in pennsylvania yeah yeah <laughs> anyway uh here's the irony in all this where i actually can call it because it was so authentically real it was god's sense of humor that happened with the swat team when I got put on the chain gang, so when you get released out of jail and you get put on an ankle monitor program, the price you pay to live at home, incarcerated, you still have lots of rules, but you don't. You get to eat better food and sleep in a better bed. The price you pay for that is you have to do work. Yeah, you have work. to like work. do it's like, service. Yeah, you're, it's like unpaid service, you know, and it's not good. The very first job I got when I got put on work detail, I had to clean the dog kennels the bathrooms. <laughs> no, listen, the dog kennels, the bathrooms and the office of the SWAT building. Yeah. So flash forward a few months later, I'm cleaning, emptying the garbages in their offices, cleaning the bathrooms and the dog stalls at the SWAT team facility who had raided my house. Yeah. They were like, I remember that guy. He was a psycho. <laughs> it was, oh my gosh, it was incredible. It was such a, a humbling... What is. is what is amazing though is I pushed this little cleaning cart around. I had my little sack lunch and got to read a book and you know, and they gave the me a little break. You read. Yeah, no. <laughs> but kidding. I got to meet some of them and they were very grateful that I was alive. Because in their line of work, when that thing happens, they don't see outcomes good. Yeah. People. Absolutely. I'm sure they were shocked. But my goodness, there were so many crazy things that happened. Yeah. And it was a it was a journey that seemed almost impossible. So I beg and plead with anyone out there listening. When your loved one puts their best foot forward, hopefully they do and tries to recover, they're going to need so much of your help. But you can require so much of them. Because when I look back now and everyone's like, well, how did you do it? How did you do it? I mean, it's so few. 7% of people recover. How did you do it? Aside from being set free, ultimately, spiritually and emotionally, by the belief I have in jesus christ it was the rigorous so aside from that fact it was the rigorous and that actually came second or yeah. third maybe uh, yeah it was a long and rigorous program i was put into a situation i didn't have a choice i had to pee into a cup with two grown men looking at me for two years i was drug tested i was accountable going to meetings i had a rigorous schedule i had a time i had to be up i had groups i had to be to i had therapists i had to see psychiatrists i had every i had so many reinforcements to keep me yeah. in line that I almost had no choice. Yeah. Even on days where I just wanted to quit and throw in the towel and just be like, screw it. I couldn't. Right. I couldn't. Right. I was barricaded in a path that led nowhere 
but success. Yeah. And here's the irony of it also. I would have never chose that. No human being's going to choose that path because it's so hard on their own, willingly. I just knew that if I was going to get help from my family, and every family can help differently. Yeah. If I was going to get any help and support, it was going to be based upon me doing these things. Yeah. They required that of you. Yeah. Because they knew that you could. Man, I don't know where else to go with this because it could go on forever. Well, I have a question for you. Please. And that is if you were to talk to yourself 90 days into your treatment, right? So you're actually still in a facility at this point. If you could talk to yourself and have a conversation with yourself at that time, what would you say? Well, I just to give you a quick knee-jerk response, I would say shut your mouth, put your head down, and do what you're told. Yeah. And I and there's more to that. Like obviously when you're trying, you know, 90 days in, you're just so you feel so much guilt and shame that you've wasted time, you've destroyed all this. But I would have just said, put your head down, just do what you can today. Put your head down. Stop thinking that you know what's best for yourself, because we all think we know what's best for ourselves. Listen to other people and do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Because there was no reason at that point. Like, I wish I wouldn't have worried because you're worrying so hard. I got to build this. I got to get this back. I got to do this. I've wasted so much. You just are spiraling. It's just, it's impossible. It would have just, because I would have only listened to myself. So that's a good question. I would have said, just put your head down. Only worry about today. Shut your mouth and do what others tell you to do. Yeah. I love that. The other question I have for you is your 15, your 15 years out from this you you are recovered I don't believe in the sentiment that once an addict always an addict because I don't I I believe you it changes full change is possible and that you have you have fully embraced a new creature that is you now um but what were what were three if you just had to think of three things that you would say contributed the most to your ability to move forward, what would they be? Okay. So the divine and most important is coming to believe in a power that can restore you to sanity is what it's described in recovery. To me, that was my heavenly father and Jesus Christ. Yeah. That is the only way, even in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, they say, if you can't come to realize that our hats are off to you, like good luck. Yeah. This is true. So let's say that's just number one. And now it, answer the three questions in practical yeah, application. Pra- yeah, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Number one was I needed help. I couldn't do it alone. The simple fact of admitting into a group of people at first that I was, my life was unmanageable and I was powerless over these things was difficult to even say the words to my family. I, can you please help? You have to find this humility to ask for help because you need the help. And if you can be grateful for that help, it changes everything. Secondly, and I think what I found to be the most profound is the willingness. Mm -hmm. I was angry. I was resentful. I was scared. I was tired. I was hungry. I was lonely. I was angry, but I was willing. And I'll share one little thing right now. It's one of the phrases I use a lot. With every person in recovery that I work with, I say, you want to know, do you want to know the secret to recovery? If you want to know, there is, there's, there's a secret. Those who recover, here it is, 
write this down. Those who recover from their addictions are those who are willing to do what's required rather than what they feel like doing. Mm-hmm. And it applies to anything. Yeah. Sexual, food, substances. Those who recover are those who are willing to do what's required rather than what they feel like doing. Talked about that a couple of podcasts ago. Yeah. And number three would be giving back, telling the story and helping other people. And you don't do that 30 days, 60 days in. Everyone who does is like, oh, I'm better now. I'm going to go save the world. They fail. But at some point in your journey, you continue healing, doing what's required, but you start reaching down and to the hands that hang down and, and lifting them up and showing them what you're doing and, and the way you're doing it. So those would be the three most important. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. I do know that that story that I lived through is becoming far too common. <laughs> I know that people do recover. I know that there are families out there, just an abundance of families willing to do anything. I remember hearing my dad say this phrase and I've everyone who knows him when I was suffering, heard my dad say, I would give everything I had, every dollar I possess, every material thing I have, I would give my actual life to help my son. And he sure as hell tried. He exhausted everything trying, but it wasn't until one day he walked out into the woods spoke out loud to God and said, if you need him more than I do, then take him. And that was his final way of letting go, like coming to terms with the fact that as successful and incredible as he was, he couldn't actually fix it. He had to go and and turn it over to God in a real way. And that's where it changed. That's where he stopped reeling and trying and frantically trying to do all these different things to try to fix me. He just let go and I could feel it. And it was it was powerful. But not only did he let go, he put simultaneously put together a plan to help so that if I did choose, they were he ready. ready. Yeah. But he knew I had to choose. And if I chose the opposite, which unfortunately too many do, mm-hmm. everyone that gets to that point I was at 15 years ago, you know, they they either die from an accidental or intentional overdose. A lot of suicide is encompassed in that where the amount of drugs used, maybe they even got drugs from a place that they shouldn't and they didn't care and they were willing to do it and they died from it. They're all categorized differently. Sure. But there are so many people who get to that point where they're using, I myself was terrified. I didn't have the courage to take my own life or I would have done it a long time ago. I just used recklessly going every time I used, I'm like, well, this might be it. Yeah. That was the amount of stuff that I was putting into my body, knowing that, well, I could my heart might explode right now. There was no correlation of feelings, just okay. Yeah. It's a difficult road that requires help. I also think a lot of families try tough love. Tough love, like my beautiful wife always explains, is all grit. Tough love only works when you have a roadmap which we call in our online courses, a gift, a gift to offer, offer your loved one as a way out. That's what allows you to be tough mm-hmm. and to draw from, you know, lines in the sand. Yeah. But I can honestly say today, like, we'll just kind of wrap up with this. If you have any other questions. Oh, I don't have okay. questions, but I have something to say. Okay. 
I can truly say that who I am today would have never been this person had I not gone through that hell. I would have remained <laughs> kind of shallow, maybe a little self-centered, a little bit arrogant, cocky, just like I was as a boy. I would have probably had a lot of that remain in my life as a man. Because we all do. We all have those imperfections. Sure. Yep. But what I went through stripped me of all of that because I had to rebuild. I'm in my 30s rebuilding my life. And it caused this really raw form of humility, of willingness, of needing other people, of having to ask for help, having to do what's required rather than what I felt like doing. And the application of doing that changed who I am. Mm -hmm. I would have been half the man that I am today. And I, I don't say that with any sense of pride. I just, I'm talking about the ability to admit my faults, to recognize when I'm doing things wrong, to listen to others, feedback, feedback, to cry with others who need to cry, to share my story of brokenness and not care if I'm judged. Those are the things that I learned that have kept me healthy. Mm -hmm. And ultimately you guys have heard our mantra and I live my life by this. It's the one way that I recovered other than being willing to do what's required yeah. rather than what you feel like. It's that our secrets keep us sick. And if I ever feel a certain way or I've done something or I'm holding something inside, I have learned to quickly disclose that and get rid of that, yeah. which has molded the life that I have today. Yeah, it has. It has. It has allowed full transformation to happen. Yeah. And I also would say something that we talk about often is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Yeah, it's, it's connection. The opposite of addiction is connection. And because of your willingness and your vulnerability, you were able to reconnect to your God, your savior, your family, yourself, and all the others around you. Um, and that to me has been the, such a gift. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's what I call grace. Grace can turn to charity. The grace that was offered to you turned into charity for others, for love, love, and an ability to relate in a way that most others can't. Um, and I, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about being, um, being broken, um, is that we have the opportunity then to either stay broken or to rebuild and use that experience to relate and help others. And that that's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, I, over the weekend, I went to this amazing event called Exploring Grace and it was with, uh, Emily Bell Freeman and it was, it was a, an amazing day. It was like a full day of experience. And I just want to share this because it was such a real way of explaining what I, what I see this whole process is the last 15 years. And Emily tells the story of she ordered a vase for her best friend for her birthday. And she got the vase and it came in this box 
And she could hear instantly when she picked up the box, like, oh, the vase didn't make it. Like it's, It shattered. And she was like, oh, well, like I'm going to open it up and see what, you know, what's going on. So she opens it up and she sees the vase is shattered and she immediately calls the company and says, I'll send you the picture, but you know, the vase is shattered. And they were like, oh, no problem. We'll send you a new one. But her personality is rather tenacious. <laughs> so she thought it would be fun to take the pieces of the vase and put it back together. Like, I know another one's coming, but real quick before my husband gets home, I'm going to lay out all the pieces and rebuild this vase. And so she said it was in 29 pieces. And she laid it all out and she got the right glue that it was like a terracotta vase. She got the, the, the right glue used and um, she laid it all out and she started putting it together. And then she quickly realized that this was going to take more than like a couple hours before her husband got home. And she was, she was like, well, one of the reasons why was because when you're gluing the pieces there's a really critical part of the process, which is like, it has to settle in place. Like it has to harden and it has to yeah, each piece, each piece has to, has to be not only carefully like found into its correct place, but it has to get strong enough to be able to take the weight of the next piece. And so she was like, but I was like, Nope, this is a worthwhile thing. I'm going to continue to do it. So she, she said, it took her two weeks, but at the end of the two weeks, she did it. Like she brought the vase to this event and she was like, this is the vase. Like when you walk into my front door, this is the vase that's at my front door. And it, you can see like, there's all these, these lines all over it. You can see where it was shattered every piece. Um, but she's like, this is my favorite thing in my house because it's grace. Like this is this is what the savior can do with each one of us. And she was like explaining kind of the process. And I'm just going to read to you um, something that, that she wrote about this process because it's so beautiful. She says, some will look at the vase and see the damage there, but I don't. I look at each piece and I see the story it has to tell about the getting found the holding fast and the strengthening. The vase has become a reminder to me of the Lord's grace, of how it works, because there are times in my own life when I have been in 29 pieces, when I have longed for most in those moments is for my life to be put back together in one afternoon. It has never happened that way. The Savior allows us to come broken. He sits with us and mends our hearts. He offers healing. He extends an enabling power that gives us strength beyond our own. He fills the empty places. He makes what was broken strong again. This is the process of grace, and it has taught me an important truth. Grace is not an event. It's a story. And I love that because I entered into Danny's story after the shattered pieces. He was, had probably put together three or four pieces when <laughs> I met him, but it was not a vase yet. And 
that's a frustrating place to be. It's frustrating for him. It's frustrating for his family. It was frustrating for me once I became his wife. Um, there was still brokenness there. But I know and I see and I've seen it in my own life that that rebuild is the story. It is the power. And I've seen it in my husband. And I see it as he is able to offer that same grace to others and help them in their in their rebuilding and being okay with the slow and tedious process it is to recover and rebuild it is a process yeah it is not an event it becomes part of your story but not the defining story but it is truly possible and it is a beautiful thing, an opportunity for all of us to be able to see that in others. But it does beg us to take a minute and take a step back and allow the process to happen. Because in so many families that, that you have worked with, it's like, okay, like we need we need to like, let's fix this. Like, yeah, it's let, always let, quick. Like, hurry, let's hurry, meet. What we, it's an what emergency. Can what can we do? And and yes, there there are times when when that is true and it's an emergency and things have to be done quickly. But the healing is a process and it does take time and it takes patience and it's critical work. It is. It's absolutely critical. Thanks for sharing that. We're grateful you guys joined us today. Um, there's a lot that's been learned and, and it is why I love doing this. It's difficult. Like there's more failure than there is success. But it's not just because of what I went through. It's watching the transformation and how this helped my family. Not over overcome this, but to like become a better version of ourselves and be more equipped to deal with the problems that we faced over the years. It is possible, but it requires a lot of work. It's hard. Yeah. Putting the first few pieces of that vase back together are, are gut-wrenching and yeah. slow. And there's a lot of agony involved. So the key to helping your loved one is... Re reaching out and asking for help, getting some support, even to make the hard choices ahead, what to be prepared for, what to do. I'm so grateful for so many things and for everyone that helped me along the way because it required an army to help me get back to this point. But we hope that if this episode touched you in any way that you'll share it with somebody because there's yes. plenty who need it. Yeah, and please. Stay tuned for next week because we're shifting gears a little bit from talking about SWAT teams and getting hogtied <laughs> to talking about navigating through one of the most rampant addictions or bad habits, whatever you want to call it, out there, which is sexual yes. pornography. You, you will and love we have someone episode. coming on that's going to really help open your eyes to that. So yes, have a beautiful week. Spring is in the air. We love you guys. And thanks for tuning in.